BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Well, hello there and welcome back to the latest edition of the Last Word on Sports Media Podcast as we come your way uh, here with a brand new edition covering everything from the aftermath of the Kentucky Derby. What is up with LeBron James's son and where he's playing college basketball, NBA playoffs, uh, NHL Stanley Cup playoffs that are heating up and much more. Uh, great to have you with us. I am merely the somewhat capable host, TJ Reeves. Thank you for finding us, however you've done so, a social media link through lastwordonsports.com and the podcast arm, lastwordonsports.com slash podcast, if you found us that way as well. Thank you. Uh, make sure you're following or subscribing. We've got great content. If you love sports media, sports media analysis, coverage, critiquing, great interviews, this is the podcast feed for you. To that end, in a little bit, we're going to hear from the host of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, the Chicago slanted uh, storytelling podcast series from George Offman, who's done a fantastic job. He has now kicked off season eight of his podcast that have been going on for the last three years. Ozzie Guillen, the former World Series uh, winning manager of the Chicago White Sox, is the guest uh, on the latest edition, a two-part edition. Part one is this week. Guillen is now... Not only uh, the accolades as a World Series manager, but Guillen is now pre- and post-game host on the Chicago White Sox coverage. He's as outspoken and controversial as just about anybody you'll find in baseball. And George loves telling you that story, and he's got more on the other guests that are coming up. And I want to talk a little Chicago sports with him as well, with the Blackhawks getting the number one pick in the NHL draft lottery. What's going on with the Chicago Bears? we got the NFL schedule released later this week. So a lot with George Hoffman. He's on this podcast feed. In fact, part one with Ozzie Guillen immediately before us here on the feed, on the last word on sports media a podcast feed. Also, Mike Gill and Phil DeMont-Mollin every week bring it with the Announcer Schedules podcast, Who's Doing It Well, uh, some great insights, some critiquing, and more from Mike and Phil on the national level in terms of uh, play-by-play, analyst work, TV, radio, NBA playoffs, Stanley Cup playoffs, uh, heck, the Kentucky Derby from last weekend. It'll be the Indianapolis 500 later on in this month as well. The, those guys do a fantastic job. If you're following or subscribing on this podcast feed, you get their content later on in the week. We come your way about midweek, recapping everything. They come your way later in the week. And again, if we get special guests, different dignitaries in the sports media world, they oftentimes go up on the podcast feed as a standalone. So that's why you want to follow and subscribe. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get podcasts. 
Find us on the Last Word on Sports Media podcast. All right, uh, coming up, speaking of Bronny James, the son of LeBron James, straight ahead, Matt Zimmick will be here from the USA Today Trojans Wire website. I want his insight on that move, but not only that, the coverage of it as the announcement came last Saturday night, and it really put him and everybody else that covers college hoops, uh, but specifically if you cover Pac-12 hoops, or in Matt's case, if you cover USC hoops, uh, it put them out to work, put them up uh, up against uh, time and deadlines on a Saturday night. You're never really off the clock. I want Matt to go through that. Matt is also uh, based in the Phoenix, uh, Arizona area, but he is a displaced Seattle guy. So I want to reminisce and talk some Seattle Sonics and, and a, a historic playoff collapse for them. I've got an interesting sports radio story to tell about the Sonics losing some Nearly 30 years ago, 29 years ago, they blew a 2-0 best-of-five lead as the number one seed and the prohibitive favorite to win the Western Conference and be in the NBA Finals. They blew a, a playoff series to the eight-seed Denver Nuggets of Dikembe Mutombo and, and company that uh, didn't even have a winning record in the regular season. So I've got a fun story about that. We'll reminisce about that. Also, the Seattle Kraken in the NHL doing exceptionally well in that Seattle market. And I want to talk to, I've made mention of this before. It has just grown on me and grown on me. Bob was choosing on the play-by-play call for ESPN Stanley Cup coverage with Brian Boucher as the analyst. They are tremendous in, in calling this. And I want Matt's thoughts on this, on the critiquing of, uh, of announcers and what he thinks. And again, this is more in the Phil and Mike Gill, Phil DeMont Mullen and Mike Gill mode with announcer schedules. But I love what these guys have done, and we'll talk with Matt some about that in a bit. Also on the podcast, my buddy Mark Ennis will be here from Louisville, Kentucky. Mark is the afternoon host on ESPN Radio uh, in Louisville, and we had intended, I had intended fully to have it be more and mostly about the Kentucky Derby and the coverage of the Derby and the controversy around horses dying and, and controversy around the starting um assignment being yanked away from the favorite of the race on the morning of the race forte was not allowed to race in this latest installment of the kentucky derby so i wanted to talk to mark about the coverage in and around it and whether or not it's fair legit uh, how much nbc pours into this coverage on tv because mark has great insight and he's been there for you know the better part of a couple of decades watching all of this unfold in the media in louisville but also now with the unfortunate news that Denny Crum, Hall of Fame basketball coach, passed away on Tuesday. I'll, I'll let Mark give you the insight on what Crum has meant not only to the Louisville basketball program as a two-time national championship coach, but also to the Louisville community and covering Denny Crum and covering his ouster uh, as well. So I'll talk with Mark Ennis about that in a bit. So let's get it all underway. Lots of conversations, takes, insight. Thank you for finding us. Let's get things rolling here on this latest edition of the show. To begin things, I always love the insight, the analysis, the versatility of one Matt Zimmick, uh, who I have been bothering for years now via the text message, via the email, via the phone call. And yet he still agrees to come on whenever I put the the MZ bat signal up. You know, it seems like, first of all, good to have you. You feeling all right? Everything good out in uh, out in the Arizona desert? Everything good? Absolutely. I mean, I'm the editor of a USC site, so uh, with Bronny James, uh, a Trojan, <laughs> life's pretty good. Life is good. I will right, we'll get to that in a moment. But it seems like, I just got to say this, that it was like 15 minutes ago or two days ago, 
that you and I met in person for the first time after all these years of doing a bunch right. of different stuff. And we met over like enchilada, you know, quesadillas, chips and, and chicken wings uh, at a sports bar on Christmas Eve, by the way, in Phoenix, because the Buccaneers were in town to play the Cardinals. I don't want to accept that that was my friend like six months ago, five and a half, six months ago that we did that. But that's OK. Time marches on. But it was great to see you then. And it's good to have you back aboard here uh, chatting with me. As Kermit the Frog said, time's fun when you're having flies. Uh, uh, yeah, well, that's a good way to put it. Uh, another thing uh, another thing when the Celtics struggled was Kermit the Frog's line, it ain't easy being green. Same thing with the Jets, <laughs> it ain't easy being green. Uh, okay, so somehow we segue off of that. Let's go to the Bronny James thing. So you run the Trojans Wire website for USA Today. You are all about any content, USC, in-season, out-of-season. A lot of it is obviously... Uh, the football program and and what happens there. Uh, but now we've had the basketball season and, uh, and and we're rocking along kind of in a little bit of a lull. I don't know if USC baseball is a big deal online for your readership. But then suddenly, long about Saturday night comes the news that LeBron James's son is going to play some college basketball, which was interesting and debatable. But not only that, he's going to play it where? He's going to play it at USC. So you had to put down the uh, how do I get another few thousand page views off another Lincoln Riley take to, to suddenly Bronny James. Take me through what Saturday night was like from a media standpoint and a work standpoint. So, you know, John Rothstein, of course, the college basketball insider. What does he say? We sleep in May. Right, right. Not That's his me. line. <laughs> Not for me this year. No sleeping in May. And it's just fascinating, though, TJ, that – like, everything is instantly different for USC basketball. But, you know, it, here's the the complexity of it all. USC had a top 15, top 20 level roster because Isaiah Collier is the number one ranked recruit in the country. Like, the final recruiting rankings for the class of 2023, Isaiah Collier, point guard, numero uno. And USC has not had an elite point guard like that, you know, uh, really ever. I mean, you could say since Jordan McLaughlin in 2018, but really USC has not had a, never had a point guard this good since you might have to go back to Gus Williams <laughs> in the mid 1970s. I thought, you know, I thought wasn't Henry Bibby USC. Am I right on Henry Bibby? I think, I don't know. Well, I, but I'm Mike gonna... Bibby, but Mike Bibby played for Arizona. Right, so, right. But like, Henry, he Henry, we're going back a while. If we're well, going to Henry, Henry coached, right. Henry coached, but I mean, I, like Gus Williams would be the last, I you know maybe the last really great sure. all-time point guard who played for the school. That's not a knock on Jordan McLaughlin. It's just how Gus, how great Gus Williams was. So like USC's lacked that kind of floor general for a very, very, very long time, and that's what made USC really a top twenty level program. So it's Isaiah Collier plus Vince Iwuchukwu, who you know he had a heart attack last summer, so he wasn't able to participate in any of the preseason workouts. And then he got, he so he missed two months of the season, played with a minutes restriction for the games that he played. And then he had back problems in late February. So he, he did not play in the Pac-12 tournament. He did not play in the NCAA tournament. So you get a full off season for Iwuchukwu now. And he'll be able, he should be able to play 30 minutes a game. So that's a huge added upside for USC. So you Iwuchukwu being healthy and having a full run, 
Isaiah Collier, number one recruit, number one point guard. Those were the main reasons that USC had a top 20 team on his hands. But with Bronny James now in, that's going to be the media magnet for the program. And so people are now going to say, oh, I got to watch USC basketball because of Bronny and the instant name recognition he brings. So people are going to think, oh, because Bronny's here at USC, this is now a Final Four contender. No, it was already a top team. But Bronny James is now going to put the media focus on it because like the Skip Baylesses and the Jay Billises and the Dick Vitales, they weren't talk. Well, okay, Billis and Vitale as college basketball experts were like the national talkers. They weren't really focused on USC. Of course not. Bronny James. Of course not. But so like for the college basketball insiders, USC had already built this elite roster. But Bronny James is now going to take this elite team and give it a national focus, going to give it a national identity. So, like, things that have been typical for USC in the past as a very obscure program living in the shadow of UCLA in Los Angeles, that's all going to flip. USC is going to be the sexier Los Angeles college basketball program than UCLA. First time you could say that since the 1940s. Wow. You know, like, since John Wooden began his dynasty – USC basketball has never been bigger than UCLA. That's going to be different this year. Other things about USC basketball that are instantly going to go bye-bye for this year, you're not going to have those 8 p.m. Pacific, 11 p.m. Eastern tip-offs, which would be you know a pretty normal thing. You know, get dumped on Pac-12 Network. No, you're not going to have that anymore. You're now going to have 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific tip-offs so that the East can see Bronny mm-hmm. James and ESPN can and Fox Sports One can deliver those prime TV ratings. You're already seeing uh, more neutral site made for TV games being scheduled. It's already been announced that USC season opener on November sixth. It's going to be in Las Vegas. They haven't announced the opponent, but like like that is a made for TV prime time of course. game. This is all happening because of Bronny James. You're going to see USC uh, have a capacity crowd. Not for UCLA, not for Arizona, for all of its home basketball games. The Galen Center, an afterthought in terms of the larger USC sports ecosystem, it's now going to be the place to be. It's going to be where people are going to want to see Bronny, but also going to want to be seen there. If the Lakers don't have a home game, but they're in the middle of a home stand and they have an off day, LeBron's going to be there, whether it's fourth <laughs> side or in a luxury suite. Wow, USC basketball instantly in a heartbeat because of Bronny is going to be this media magnet team. And it just opens up all sorts of possibilities in terms of the program being able to change its national reputation under coach Andy Enfield. I love how you've brought this in and around of the media, the media coverage. Suddenly Stephen A. Smith is going to be talking about this team. Suddenly they're going to be on the on the front page of different websites, maybe Yahoo Sports, maybe CBSSports.com, as well as ESPN.com. They're going to be talking more about USC basketball. Now for what you do, obviously with USA Today Sports and the Trojans Wire website, I'm fascinated by this, and I think our audience appreciates this. I love how the sausage is made. I love to go back in the kitchen and and find this stuff out. The, the twins have me watching way too many cooking shows on the Food Channel and HGTV and uh, the Cooking Channel and all that stuff. So take me back to Saturday. You're minding your business. You got playoff basketball on. The Kentucky Derby's happened, and then suddenly this news comes out. 
So take me through your mindset, your role, and and how you began to dole out responsibility and implement this, because I'm fascinated on this part of it. So go ahead real quick. So like when, when a huge story like this comes out and you know that like Bronny James is an SEO goldmine, he's, you know, the, the kind of search engine optimization, you know, dream come true, you know, you have to get not just you, you don't only know that you're going to have to deliver a lot of Bronny James content for the next several days and really for the next several weeks, months, and that, you know, you have to keep hitting that now that he's part of the, the school that you cover. But also, like in terms of like the first two hours, got to get multiple stories up, got to get multiple stories posted. One of those stories, and this is part and parcel of the online content business, got to get a Twitter reaction piece. You know, got it. You know, just like that. That is just like uh, bees to honey. You know, the, that the, those kinds of things. You know, a, a word that we use in the business, sticky. You want to get these sticky stories that are going to get traction, that are going right. to get buzz, right. that are going to you know, linger with, with your readership. So you had to get multiple stories up quickly in like the first 90 minutes to, to two hours, uh, right after the story broke. By multiple, if I can interject, story. by multiple, do you mean three? Do you mean five I mean, within the first couple of hours? I mean, at least two to three. And we got three stories up, uh, in, in the first two hours. And, and, you know, so one was just the breaking news. One was Twitter reaction. Then one was the you know, what does it mean story? Like the, like the big picture. And so like, just, there was a need to have to do several different things in those first two hours. And I mean, you know, then the, you had the Laker warrior game later that night. And, and, uh, when, uh, uh, both Bronny James and Andy Anfield were shown on the jumbotron, the video scoreboard, uh, at the Laker game, Kate, like that's an item you have to hit on. <laughs> so other, other sticky viral moments, like in the first, several hours after the story broke as a side editor yeah those are the kinds of things you have to pay attention to and then you know for our sunday monday tuesday coverage what was it about like it was just like you know all the different concept think pieces that one could come up with like how does this change usc basketball what does it mean for top recruit isaiah collier what does it mean for andy enfield what does it mean for boogie ellis the big star who came back you know just like hitting those different silos those different uh, items. And then, you know, Monday, Tuesday, it's like, okay, what should the national expectations be? Final four, sweet 16, elite eight. Sure. Uh, you know, what about LeBron James presence in all of this? Like, is he going to intervene and kind of get in Andy Enfield's way? How is that all going to work? Bronny James playing time. How much of a contention point is it going to be? Is Bronny going to start? Is he going to come off the bench? How much does it matter? Like you're just trying to, go through all the different things and you know as a side editor and and for people who don't really follow the machinations very closely here's the thing you have you know weeks months to generate content so like you can't do everything in one story it's about parceling it out getting several posts up each day you know mm -hmm. so that you're feeding the google uh, algorithm with quantity and quality but like you can't just say everything that is to be said in one or two posts it's it, it one and one of the things about the online content business this is not unique to what i do under the gannett usa today umbrella it's true for anyone who works at any uh like larger sports content site uh you know i've worked at other sites uh in, in the industry through various years and the concept has generally 
always been the same. What evolves is, you know, what's the hot SEO name or term of the moment. But like the broader concepts, they haven't changed all that much. And one thing is that, you know, instead of writing one 2000 word essay, which we probably did a lot more of in the 1990s and before the Internet uh, you know, became really as mainstream uh, in our lives. Um, instead of writing one 2,000-word essay, you write seven 300-word pieces, and you 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 distribute out the content. You get more posts. You get you get more you know different angles because if you say everything that needs to be said in one shot, and people either don't flock to that article or maybe that like they. They read only a snippet of what you're saying instead of the whole thing because it's so long and attention spans, uh, you know, aren't as are as long today as they used to be. Then you're not connecting your your audience with everything that you want to say about this really interesting hot topic. So instead, you do you do several much shorter pieces, smaller bites of the apple, but you're conveying each specific granular point. And because it's a shorter piece, the readers who go to that piece, A, they're more likely to read everything that you're saying in that 300-word shot. But the other thing is readers are getting more unique insights. And so maybe one of those six or seven insights really resonates and strikes a chord and several thousand people will read that piece. That is a way to create more potential uh, for page views rather than just the one 2000 word article. So there's, there's an art form in terms of distributing your insights. You don't have to get all your insights in one article. You can, you know, like I'm in the middle of May, it's the off season. You know, this as well, that, you know, you work in the NFL, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and you've just, you know, concluded your college basketball coverage. You know, this is your off season too. Like right. you don't have to say everything there is to be said about the NFL draft and the Bucks today. There's Thursday to worry about. That's There's right. Saturday to worry about. There's next week to worry about. There's June to worry about. You will be able to say all these things. I will be able to say everything I want to say about Bronny James in the course of time. Don't have to do it all as all at once. It's a lot like getting groceries for the family. Stretch your dollar. You know. Get get the get the larger pack of ramen or whatever. Right. You don't have to fix the whole thing today. You can save a little bit for tomorrow and for the weekend and you can marshal your resources. That's a lot about that's that's a good comparison to how the online content business works and how you manage a website each day, each week, as I do at Trojans Wire. All right. So I'm just curious along those lines on a typical May weekend you probably don't have tons of audience because again unless there's for, for a usc situation or for a lot of colleges unless the college baseball team is doing great or unless there's scandal unless there's something like uh conference realignment it's a little bit of a slower time so you don't have to give me exact numbers but when this hit for saturday into sunday sunday into monday did you get I would guess 20% more audience, but did you get 30% more audience? Did you get 50% more audience? How much did it skyrocket when this came out for a May weekend, not a typically action-packed news busy time? How did it work? You know, so it wasn't stratospheric. And I think, you know, for just to, just to be really honest about, uh, you know, how my uh, audience reacts at Trojans Wire, 
you for USC sports fans, this is not a criticism. This is just simply uh, uh, saying how it is and, and how how the patterns seem to be. Like the USC sports audience uh, just wants to prove it on the field, wants to prove it on the court. So like when we get into football season and when we will get into Bronny James and this USC basketball season, traffic's going to skyrocket. We didn't have skyrocketing traffic this weekend, but readership was definitely like four, five, six times greater than it was uh, in the middle of the week. And I think one of the keys there, though, is like hitting it right when the story breaks, when it's really fresh. Like that's how you ride the wave and you get a lot more page views and you get a lot more uh, metrics than you do otherwise. But, you know, this is still what Bronny James is delivering to USC. It's all about right now, right now potential like it's not realized potential it's not actualized potential and so when we get to the actual season that's what i'm predicting that you know we're you're going to have enormous gigantic interest but nevertheless interest was certainly much higher for this story you could see the sharp rise um you know in in reader uh, participation visiting the site uh over the weekend but it's really going to happen when you know usc football takes the field when USC basketball takes the court uh, with Bronny, that's where you're going to see more of it. But there was certainly substantial, substantially increased engagement over the weekend. And it gets crazier and more weird, weirder, if that's right, when these programs, USC and UCLA, move to the Big Ten, which will be coming soon, uh, to, to add another layer to all of this. Love Matt Zimmick's insight. Follow him at Matt Zimmick, Z-E-M-E-K. He's a fun follow on Twitter. Uh, for everything sports, for everything pop culture, uh, for everything politics, uh, state of affairs in the country. I, I keep joking with you. This is a good thing. You and I are a lot more alike than what you even realize. You keep tweeting and I keep going. He knows about the same things I know about. He reminisces about the same things I reminisce about and remembers the same kind of sports things in the 80s and the 90s that I remember. So you and I... We are a lot alike in that regard, and that's a compliment. That's a compliment to you. Keep it up. So, Matt, speaking of which, we we have just crossed the 29th anniversary this past Sunday, May the 7th, of one of the great early round upsets in NBA playoff history, certainly not only in the 90s, but in modern basketball, when the seemingly invincible Seattle Sonics somehow, somehow lost their way in a five-game series to blowing a 2-0 lead, winning the first two games in Seattle, then losing two to the Denver Nuggets, a team with a losing record, by the way, and then somehow losing game five on their home floor. That was May 7th, 1994. And little did we know what we were in store for about a month later with the O.J. Simpson situation. The World Cup was ongoing. There was all kinds of craziness in the summer of 94. This kind of let it off uh, that day on May the 7th, 1994. So... You were a guy that spent time in Seattle, but you were just saying to me, you cautioned me just before I came on the air, you had not gotten to Seattle yet that 1994 calendar year when this was such an epic defeat when the Sonics seemed to be so poised to maybe make a run into the NBA Finals that you remember no Michael Jordan because he had gone to play baseball in 1994. But Matt, what do you remember about that in particular because you would show up in Seattle right later that year and I have to believe they were still devastated even later that year. Absolutely. No, I mean, though, like those years for Seattle, uh, Seattle sports and specifically following the songs were very painful. And I mean, 
So yeah, I was a, I became a Seattle University freshman in the fall of 1994. So these were just a few months before I actually set foot on the grounds of Seattle University. But I still loved those George Carl Sonics. I love George Carl. Uh, I love Gary Payton. I love you know the way that they played, the energy, uh, the personality that they brought to the court. So like, yeah, that was a punch to the gut. What happened against Dikembe Mutombo? Uh, and the Nuggets in 1994. And, you know, like the thing about George Carl and, you know, great coach, right? Like he very accomplished, very credentialed, but like his teams could be erratic. And, you know, when you say teams are a reflection of their, of their head coaches, like Carl wore his emotions on his sleeve and he was a bit of a hothead. And, you know, with, with Gary Payton and also Kendall Gill, like you had some very out there, personalities and part of that reality was you had a volatile emotional profile on that team and within that context of volatile emotions that team got very tight George Carl teams would get very tight and so the failure in 94 and then they also stumbled early in the 1995 playoffs as well you know there was a profound worry would this team ever put it together and that's why that 96 season making the finals uh, and giving the Bulls a good test in six games was so special. That really rescued that era. If you don't have the 96 season making the finals, then that that era becomes a total bust. But, you know, in terms of the 94 failure, it wasn't just losing the, the, the series after being up 2-0 and losing as a one seed to an eight. It was also because the previous year, Seattle took the Charles Barkley, Kevin Johnson, Dan Marley sons to seven games in what was an epic, high-level Western Conference final series. And you know the NBA on a fundamental level as well as I do. You know that in the NBA generally over history, it usually is you have to lose at a high level before you win. You have to you have to endure a painful defeat before you take that next step. That was the Isaiah Thomas Pistons. They had to run into the brick wall of the Larry Bird Celtics before they transcended them. This was Michael Jordan. You had to run into the bad boys, lose a few times to the Pistons, before you exceeded them. Like that was the cycle of life in the NBA at that time. So the, the Sonics barely lost to the Suns in seven games in 93. So 94 figured to be their time. And one other part of this is that Seattle wore out Houston. The, the Seattle was kryptonite for the Houston Rockets. If those two teams met in the Western Conference Finals, Seattle had the, the, the tremendous matchup advantage so if the, the Rockets were getting through on the other half of the West bracket Seattle just had to take care of business on its own side and the Sonics were going to be the huge favorite against Olajuwon against Clyde Drexler in a potential Western Conference final series that's also why the Nuggets loss hurt so badly because the bracket set up so well for Seattle with the Suns and Rockets beating each other up uh, in, you know, on the on the other half of that bracket, you know, that was the year really to win the world title and the Sonics fumbled the bag. No doubt. Uh, I love Matt's insight. So I got a couple more things uh, on this. Obviously, Houston went on to the NBA finals to play the Knicks. And you actually put this on social media. Uh, you were asking about a tennis match being abandoned, a high profile tennis match for whatever reason, the coverage abandoning it. And you brought up the Heidi game, the famous game where NBC left the broadcast of the Oakland Raider New York Jets game and missed the ending of the game where the Raiders scored two times in about 30 seconds of clock time 
to come from behind and win while NBC had made the decision uh, to go ahead and put Heidi, the television show, the children's uh, movie. 1968. 1968, Sunday, 7 p.m. was movie night, movie time, movie hour for NBC. And so they didn't get the word to stay with the game, to stay with the football game. So it's always referred to as the Heidi game. And then you always refer to something being taken off the air as a Heidi or you Heidi that game. So I thought immediately, and I put this on social media, that 94 Rockets team that you're saying to me may have never been in those finals if the Sonics had gotten their hands on them. The Rockets playing the New York Knicks and back to O.J. Simpson and the Bronco chase, not once but twice, NBC left the broadcast of that game with no other way to see the game. No cable network, no internet. The internet's in its infancy. It's only like a year old or a year or two old. There's no way to see the game while they left for Tom Brokaw, NBC News, and the live coverage of the slow speed Bronco chase. They left the finals for several minutes on two occasions while the game is going on. So that's the closest thing I could replicate to that. And you're bringing up the now NBA they did, finals. They did double box for portions, but it's not, but not right. the whole way. Yeah. But they, yeah. they, I mean, they were gone for a couple of minutes of game yep. action with no way to see it. And if you didn't have the national radio call somehow, some way, or some way in the local market in Houston or New York to hear it in the radio on the radio, you weren't able to find out what was going on while this uh, while this was happening. Okay, all so of I, this is all of this is making me want to watch June 17, 1994, oh, the ESPN 30 for 30. All amazing over documentary, and we got to pull that yes. back out for this very reason for all that was happening. Uh, that day. And I could tell you, uh, you know what? It's a day. You and I will be back on later in the summer to talk about that documentary because this will be the 29th anniversary of all that happening. And where I was with my future wife and how it relates, because it ties in not only the OJ situation, not only the NBA finals, not only the New York Rangers and their victory parade that day, uh, but uh, Arnold Palmer and the U.S. Open ties in the start of the World Cup in 1994 in the United States ties in to that day, the opening game of the World Cup, yes, the entire yes. tournament. And TJ Bride and another couple are in Atlanta for Deion Sanders. Hello, Pac-12. Hello, Colorado. Playing baseball for the Cincinnati Reds against the Atlanta Braves on that Friday night that all of that was going on. And you I didn't have a, have a phone with an app and you can just no, look at all these things. no. So uh, more to come on you and I telling stories about that. But I want to bring this back to one other fun thing about that time period. So at that time, I'm in my second year of doing Tampa Bay sports radio in a major market. I am a a five-day-a-week sports radio host at that time on the only all-sports station in Tampa Bay. And a shout-out because the station began actually in 1990. This was the fourth year of existence of it. It was the first-ever all-sports radio station in the state of Florida, and it was only the fourth one, I believe, in the entire country. That when it took when it took to the airwaves in 1990, it was behind like WFAN and a couple of other ones. All right, so that station is going along, uh, and for those that that are hearing me, that are fans of me, they will remember the old sports radio 910. That was the call letters, and it was WFNS. We are the fans. Sports radio 910 or 910 WFNS. So I am the midday host. At that time, we hired an afternoon host from out of market who had been in Houston, Texas. God love him. Ken Silverstein is his name. 
So Ken had come out of the Houston market as a radio guy there who had been doing talk shows, had been part of the Rockets broadcast, et cetera. So Ken came to the station probably a month before these playoffs, probably like <laughs> March. And Ken had been talking. Now, the NBA was a bigger deal at that time because Shaquille O'Neal and Penny Hardaway, I'm talking about in the Tampa Bay market, Shaquille O'Neal and Penny Hardaway, Shaq and Penny, had shown up with the Orlando Magic the, the two previous seasons, and the Magic were really good. Those same Matt Zimmick 94 playoffs, the Indiana Pacers swept Shaq and the Magic and cleaned them out of the NBA playoffs in three straight games, those same first-round NBA playoffs. So we had been talking some NBA. Ken had been talking some NBA. But Ken had been saying religiously on this Tampa sports radio station as the afternoon host that the Seattle Sonics, he thought, were going to be one of the great teams ever, ever in the NBA. Now, this is before the Bulls several years later would win 70-plus games or the Warriors won 70-plus games and won the title. So Ken's point was they're going to run through the West and his prediction, here comes the punchline and the payoff, was they're going to only lose three games the entire <laughs> postseason. They're only going to lose three games the entire postseason. And I'm not talking about once that Ken Silverstein said this, because I was the show preceding him, and we would do a tease, oh, and he would talk about God. how he was ready to talk NBA this and the Sonics that, and we, you know, we got to get over the magic get being swept and blah, blah, blah. So the mantra of they're only going to lose three times in the postseason actually comes true after being up 2 nothing on the Nuggets, 1994. They lose the next three games, best of five, oh, and they man. are eliminated. I kid you not that not only that next Monday after that game on Saturday afternoon, but for weeks after that, I would regularly introduce him as the man who accurately predicted that the Seattle Sonics would only lose three games in the 94 postseason. And he looked at me and sneered at me. And then some, some of the time he would laugh at me. One time he pulled me aside and said, you really got to stop making fun of me about this. It was a bad prediction. And I said, I, I really don't have to stop and I'm not going to because it's a way that we're attracting attention for both of us that I'm going to keep saying you're the man that correctly predicted the Seattle Sonics to only lose three times in the postseason in 1994. He was right, Matt. He got he it right. He, he was. Got it. Now, he was envisioning the Lawrence O'Brien trophy, the gold trophy with the ball on top in the NBA for the three playoff losses. But that's a little minor detail. To, yeah, uh, that's not I, something you drop after just 24 hours. You know that. And course. I did not. Just like you were milking cold. Ronnie James content this past weekend, yes. Monday into Tuesday, and you will be until September or maybe 2027. Uh, I, I had to do the same thing with that. And, uh, and I haven't spoken to Ken in years. Uh, last I knew he was in Cleveland, Ohio. He had done some sports radio in Cleveland. He had settled in Cleveland, was in business in Cleveland, that kind of stuff. But I'm positive, positive <laughs> he will still remember the summer of 94 for that well, you reason. You make sure he'd never forget. Oh, my God, uh, for that. All right, so one more thing, because I monopolized it now with storytelling on a, on a couple of different fronts. Oh, they don't have the Sonics. They, they don't have basketball. They don't have the NBA. And maybe the NBA is coming back as an expansion situation. But we do know this. The hockey, the NHL Seattle Kraken have come in and have now pulled a stunning upset of the Colorado Avalanche, the defending Stanley Cup champs. 
And now the Kraken, at the time that we released this podcast, are in a dogfight with the Dallas Stars as a second-year expansion team. So I am curious, how much are you paying attention to this? How much are you enjoying the national love that the Kraken are getting, albeit it's the postseason in the NHL? Uh, I mean, albeit it's it's an expansion team, but this is getting some attention. It's quite a story. And as a guy who's been in Seattle for part of your life previously, what do you make of this? What's your thought from an attention standpoint, bringing it back to the media and how good a story this is? Oh, I mean, certainly the like I'm I'm based in Phoenix, but like I still obviously, you know, follow Seattle sports teams. And like this has been a golden age for Seattle sports. Let's start with that point that you had the Mariners finally making the playoffs, winning a playoff series. You had the Seahawks making the playoffs in a year when, you know, they were supposed to be horrible. You know, Geno Smith, come on. They're not supposed to even sniff the playoffs, but they make it. The Washington Huskies with Kalen DeBoer, Michael Penix, they win 11 games. You know, and, and they, they're going to be like a, a, a contender for the college football playoff. Um, so many different great things have been happening in Seattle sports. People don't know what to make of it. Like they, they're they waiting for the gut punch. They're waiting for the crash and burn, but it's not happening. And now you have the Kraken joining this parade of Seattle sports uh, success story. So it's all quite amazing. The other two really big points to make just in terms of sports history, one is that Seattle could play, you know, if it advances past Dallas, could play the Las Vegas Golden Knights uh, in in the West Finals with you know, one team going to the Cup Final. Vegas made the Cup Final in one of its first few years Correct. of existence. And so we're seeing a reality in which being an expansion team in the modern NHL does not mean you have to wait forever to make your first Stanley Cup Final. And the comparison, or I should say the contrast is, you know, the, when the Mariners broke into major league baseball in 1977 like they had to wait almost 20 years to have one decent team you know the lou Pinella team in 1995 that finally delivered seattle its first uh postseason appearance finally made the town really fall in love with the mariners not as though seattle was indifferent to the mariners but that team was just horrible for nearly the first 20 years of its sure. existence so it's a, also a story about how expansion teams do not mean you have to wait forever to, to have your first taste of success. The Kraken are doing this in, in, in year two. So like those are a few really big stories in terms of uh, Seattle's emergence as a, as a hockey town. The other part is that in Seattle with its tech, uh, you know, Amazon, Microsoft, you know, that whole, whole kind of thing. Like you have a lot of expats from New York, from the Northeast, you know, relocating to Seattle. Uh, to make a to make a life for themselves, um, you know, like you also have New York expats uh, or maybe Seattle expats, you know, going to like Montana and and, and the uh, Rocky Mountains. But you have a lot of New York expats settling in Seattle to see, you know, when the Rangers are in town right. playing the Kraken. There was a feeling that the Kraken would basically be like they'd provide more NHL games for New Yorkers or for Philadelphians. Uh, but no, like Seattle has taken ownership. Uh, of that hockey market, it's not just a a place where out of towners get to see their team. No, it's Seattle's team. It's it is very much Seattle's team in year two. That's also another story about the Kraken's meteoric rise. Love all of this from Matt Zimmick. We got to go here in just a second, covering all these different things. Are you with me? Let's bring it back to sports media. I did not realize until a year ago, really, and I think most people the same way that Bob was choosing 
was as fantastic a hockey announcer as he is. I had heard Washusen on college sports, college football, college basketball. I knew of him from doing the New York Jets radio and had been around him. It turns out he's got an extensive hockey background of doing New York Rangers, doing Rangers on the radio, doing Rangers even fill-in TV at times, which obviously ESPN knew. But Matt Zimmick, give me a critique here. I am I, I, I'm ready to walk down the aisle and say I do whenever whenever Bob Washusen and Brian Boucher, who I think is very underrated as an analyst, very enthusiastic, very insightful, they are tremendous together. And I'm not their agent, and I don't work for ESPN, but that's my take on it. What is your take just from the broadcasting critique and and uh, those guys calling games? Yeah, so, hey, like I grew up in Phoenix. Uh, I'm definitely not a hockey expert. Uh, I definitely don't know the ins and outs uh, of hockey, but I do know the ins and outs of broadcasting, what represents a superior product. And I grew up on Gary Thorne and Bill Clement in mm-hmm. terms of the Stanley Cup playoffs mm-hmm. uh, you know, on ESPN and also, of course, Mike Emmerich at Fox, then later at uh, NBC. And, like, you know, Sean McDonough, terrific broadcaster, extremely credentialed. Like, no one doubts his, how, how good and professional and competent he is. This is not a criticism of Sean McDonough. But in terms of that hockey energy, that hockey presence, like, there's you, like you need to bring energy to this fast-paced, crash-bang sport, especially in the Stanley Cup playoffs. And, like, when a goal occurs or when a, when a huge moment occurs you want that energy and passion that that is central to being an elite hockey broadcaster as we've seen from Gary Thorne and Doc Emmerich Bob Wischusen hits that bullseye much more than Sean McDonough does like to me he is ESPN's foremost hockey voice I, I think if you ask you know hockey people and people who really appreciate the present presentation of a hockey game especially a playoff hockey game on television, they wouldn't necessarily be critical of McDonough, but they would say, Washusen hits the mark. He hits the bullseye without question. It's a lot like when Chris Fowler ascended to the top uh, college football announcing job, you know, that like, hey, he deserved it. He put in his time, like he earned it. But, you know, Brent Musburger was still like the guy you would want uh, behind the microphone because of the energy, because of the extra passion the inflection points um you know when when big moments happen who really gets fully around that moment who fully squeezes all of the meaning and the energy and the emotion surrounding big moments when they happen in games bob washusen is that guy in hockey announcing and i can say that as someone who studies the industry like he's definitely hitting the bullseye more than sean mcdonough is just if you're going to compare those two and guys. Look, I, I do the play-by-play thing for a living. I am the first one to admit on this podcast and everywhere, I would not be good on hockey. I, I think it would take me a real curve to even get average at calling it. There are just some people that are gifted to call it. Doc Emmerich, uh, God love him, was born to call hockey. And you mentioned Gary Thorne, too. It just seemed like they were born to call hockey. Watch me make you smile. If you know the name Dan Kelly, who called the St. Louis Blues forever and then eventually on the NHL, born to call hockey. So, And in, and in Emmerich's case, I think Richard Deitch, the sports media critic who does a fantastic job writing, covering the media, does his own podcast, very successful he dubbed it over a decade ago. Nobody calls madness and chaos better than Mike Emmerich, Doc Emmerich. So that is the standard. 
Uh, that is the guy. Nobody else is going to measure up to that. Kenny Albert and Eddie Olchek do a fantastic job. They're going to call the Stanley Cup final this year on Turner. Turner has the Stanley Cup final. Sean McDonough and Ray Ferraro are good. I would not put them in the category of great as somebody that's been listening to Doc Emmerich and Olchek, that's been listening to Gary Thorne and Bill Clement, like you mentioned. I think you reserve great for that. I am about to, I, 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 it's like The Bachelor, will you accept this rose? I will almost put Washusen and Brian Boucher in the great category. It's that fun and engaging of a listen when they are calling the game. And again, they were on the Monday night call of Oilers and Vegas Golden Knights. And I know it's varying up right now according to what night Turner has the game, what night ESPN has the game, who's still left, who's still eliminated. Uh, I'm pretty sure that Washusen and Boucher are going to be calling an, another round here of the playoffs. We'll see. Maybe they aren't. Maybe it's only McDonough and Ferraro when we get to the next round for the conference final because, again, Turner has the big call of the Stanley Cup final. But I, I've enjoyed them for how much ever longer that we hear them, and uh, it's fun. It's a fun listen, and I thought I would just relate that to hockey. Anything else? Yeah, uh, yeah. so look, this is a media podcast. I think it's worth sure. just bringing up how – not every sport is the same, right? There is an art to calling hockey, which is different from the art of calling football, right. which is different from the art of calling basketball, which is different from the art of calling baseball. Worth remembering, like Al Michaels was not a success calling the NBA finals. Basketball was just not the unique sport that he mastered, but like great in baseball, epic in hockey with the miracle on ice, and of course the gold standard in football. And Brent Musburger, you know, you you, yes. you want him behind the mic for an NBA game and an NFL game, gold standard for decades in those two sports, but not baseball. Baseball was the sport that slipped through his fingers in terms of like he didn't quite have the nuances down for that. So it's a really good reminder. This discussion is an excellent primer and overview on how, you know, if you master two or three sports, like you are a god in the announcing industry, but really mastering all four of the major team sports, baseball, basketball, football, hockey, I don't think there is anyone who did it. Like Mike Emrick did NCAA tournament games. Correct. And it just wasn't the, 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 no. the sweet spot for him. So, like, it, it, you, no one, to my mind, maybe Mike Tirico, maybe. Like, maybe right. he's the one who comes the closest. Well, but Al Michaels is a great example. Most, for most immortals, if you get three of the four team sports, you are the best of all time. But you're not going to get all four in virtually every instance. And Al Michaels is a great example. And that famous New York or uh, that famous uh, uh, Olympic uh, hockey run was the first time he had ever done hockey. He had never done hockey before anywhere. And they hired him because ABC had the Olympics. And they basically said, we need you to bring what you've been bringing to our college football coverage, to our baseball. You know, he had occasionally done some baseball for ABC. They wanted him to bring it for hockey. Remember, this is early Al Michaels before he ever got to do Monday night football, much less the playoffs and the Super Bowl. This is this is uh, proving ground, training ground to do this, to call this. So it's a, it's amazing that he had never done it before. My point with Washusen is he has done it before. We just didn't know it unless you were hardcore listening to New York Ranger games on the radio or on TV. You didn't know that. It's been a revelation the last couple of years since ESPN's gotten hockey back. And again, this is not to insult that the others are bad. 
I'm just saying yeah. I'm more engaged. I'm more engaged uh, yeah. when it's there, for sure. You know, like when we talk about the Heisman Trophy, for instance, you know, when you talk about who should win, it's not like you're criticizing the second place guy. It's just you're saying this guy's the best. Like if you're the, if you're the second or third best college football player in the United States, right. it's not a criticism. All right. It's just someone else has set the standard higher. Like if, you know, if Roger Federer is the third best tennis player of all time, that's not a criticism. It's just Djokovic and Nadal have, have done it better. So like that is another thing about media criticism or really criticism and evaluation of anybody saying that someone is second best or he's not quite as good as the other guy. That is not criticism. Now, if you're saying someone's worse, that's criticism. Or if but they're not bad, that, not or that if they're bad at what the they do. Higher. Right. Yes. If they're bad, if they're and bad at what they do, then that's criticism. I agree. That's yes. right. And 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 con the converse of, of all this is when two guys are bad at their jobs, you don't say this guy's better. You you say this guy's not as awful. Right. And that is something we really need to pay attention of in terms of how we evaluate everything. We need to have the have the difference between someone being better. That's when two guys are are good or or great. And you establish who sets the even higher standard as a compliment. And then when two guys are bad at something, you say this guy's worse or that guy's not quite as awful. We have a real problem in terms of getting that whole stuff right. If two people are bad at their jobs, you don't say this guy's better. You say this guy's not as not as horrible. And we, we need to calibrate that in terms of how we evaluate the media in sports and how we evaluate just anything in life. That is a good lesson and reminder for anyone uh, uh, offering media criticism or really criticism of any kind. This is why I have you on because this is like life coaching too, to end the segment. Listen, thank you so much for the time. You're generous with it. Plug away again, writing about Bronny James, writing about USC football, writing about anything USC that you have going on. Plug away on where we find it, where we hear it, Matt Zimmick, where, where we can find more. So, Hey, Trojans Today.com. And we can now say that Trojans Wire is your home for Bronny James coverage, for <laughs> Caleb Williams coverage, for Lincoln Riley coverage. Like USC is where the stars go to play. I mean, that that is just the reality of it. So you want you want coverage of these megawatt stars and these and the teams that they're part of? Come on down to Trojans Wire. You're gonna get plenty of content, plenty of insight, plenty of perspectives. And just the one thing for which I want to toot my own horn a little bit, like I covered USC basketball, men and women, vigorously in February and March because, like, they had good teams. They were both yep. NCAA tournament teams. So, like, this is not just some Bronny James wave that I'm riding. Like, I believe in covering USC basketball, and USC basketball has a good product. Like, you get adult, grown-up USC basketball coverage at Trojans Wire, and Bronny James is just going to – take that to the next level so you want you get good football and basketball meat and potatoes coverage uh at trojans wire you've gotten that all along the past three years while i've been on the job but now with Bronny, you're just, you're just gonna get more of it and so this is the place to be love it matt zimmick thank you i appreciate you spending some time with me here on the last word on sports media podcast you're the best we'll do it again soon thank you tj Love that man's insight. We'll rock along with more insight on the Kentucky Derby and the passing of 86-year-old legendary basketball coach Denny Crum from the Louisville market and the Louisville perspective. Mark Ennis will be here in just a little bit. But if you're part of this podcast feed, 
You should know something about Tell Me a Story I Don't Know as Season 8 is underway. The host of that show is George Hoffman. I always love catching up with him to get inside. George is more than a 40-year radio veteran of the Chicago uh, media market. So many stories, so many relationships. That's what makes this podcast series so great from him. Tell me a story I don't know. Let's get into it now with George and the kickoff of his Season 8 and his opening uh, interesting, loudmouth, controversial first guest that he has. Yes, the show is getting more dignified by the second because I welcome in here one of our podcast brothers on this Last Word on Sports Media podcast feed. He hosts the engaging, I'm no, not over-exaggerating, the entertaining and engaging uh, long-form interview podcast series tell me a story i don't know that series with a chicago tinge a chicago slant i love this i go to the not so windy city where i am told the weather is actually decent right now as we're in may hello george offman how are things well you can look behind me it's a beautiful day in chicago (laughs) which is rare um so it's like 60 plus degrees which is normal and sunny and yesterday was raining in 50 so it 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 just changes by the minute. But yes, it is very nice here. Thank you, TJ. We have much to go over in a short amount of time. I want to get to Ozzie Guillen, who's this week's subject. And actually, it's a two-part subject for you, the former White Sox manager, the longtime player and a uh, broadcaster in his own right. We'll get to that in a moment. Again, George has done a fantastic job with a cross-section of uh, different guests uh, regional, local around Chicago, but also national as well in recent episodes where you're hearing from the likes of Greg Gumbel, who got his start in Chicago, now with CBS talking NCAA tournament, Jason Benetti, uh, who is uh, Fox Sports and also the White Sox play-by-play, Joe Madden, the World Series winning manager of the Chicago Cubs. All of those interviews on the podcast feed, uh, just go back and search by the names if you want to hear from Greg Gumbel or Jason Benetti, Joe Madden, on and on, and you can search the bigger names like Bob Costas, Michael Wilbon, uh, Kevin Harlan, uh, Chicago legends like Mike North, the talk show host, et cetera. So great job with with what you have done. We love continuing to cohabitate here, to cross-promote here, keeping up the great work. And you have now kicked off season eight with a real live wire, so much so you need two <laughs> episodes for one yeah. Ozzie Gein. I know this is one of your favorite guys, too. You have unabashedly said that to me off the air and in a, and in a previous conversation you love Ozzie Guillen, the World Series winning manager, the longtime shortstop and infielder in Major League Baseball, who is not afraid to speak his mind, George. No, he's not. If you think of Charles Barkley, you can think of Ozzie Guillen, albeit with broken English. Uh, Charles Barkley is really loved these days, albeit too many commercials. But people like him, and they like him because he's honest and he gives you his feelings, unabashed feelings. That's the same way with Ozzie. And that's the way Ozzie was when he broke in with the White Sox in 1985. He's the rookie of the year. I covered him then. And when he stunningly became manager of the White Sox in 2004, this after he was the third base coach of the Florida Marlins mm-hmm. at Wrigley Field for the famous Bartman game. Ozzie Guillen was the third base coach and they beat the Cubs and won the World Series. And when Ozzie was named manager, all of us went, what? Him? And Ozzie gave us a smile. And for the next eight years, laughs and some incredibly controversial statements a lot of them made with four-letter words that's ozzy (laughs) but he's great he's just i love ozzy he's not only great for a quote if he knows you he trusts you and you know i 
trust Ozzie's judgment. Listen, he wanted to be manager of the White Sox again this time. There was no way they're going to hire him a, another time. And so he's been doing television. And he's and, extremely popular with Chuck Garfine, whose co-host who's going to be a member of, he's going to be in season eight as well. What a show. It's incredibly popular. And it's interesting, but we don't nationally, we don't get to see a lot of the pre and the post that in the Chicago yeah. market you do. Now, the White Sox at the time that we're doing this podcast have gotten off to a bad start. So is he ultra critical, even though he's a former World Series winning manager, he's on the White Sox broadcast, not a neutral broadcast, pregame and postgame. Is he being ultra critical of the team he used to manage uh, maybe overly critical at times because he can be that way. How would you judge it for everybody else that's not seeing it? He's being critical. I don't think he's going over the top. I mean, you know, all you have to do is take a look at the White Sox at 12 and 24, what they are now, and they were off to their worst start since 1950. It's easy to criticize him. And Nazi, you know, he's, he's, he's telling people what it is. That's very simple. Uh, but in this particular episode, I mean, there's so much in this episode, let alone part two. Uh, you know, Ozzy's talking about his relationship in Chicago. He's talking about his native country, Venezuela, which he criticizes severely. Um, he has stuff about tweeting, which got him in a great deal of trouble. Yep. Him and his sons versus the White Sox and a particular writer named Jay Mariotti of the Chicago Sun-Times. Mm -hmm. There's so much packed into this thing. But you got to pay attention because Ozzy still speaks broken English. But that's part of the charm. A really quick story. So I was out of the business for about six months. And uh, I didn't go to the ballpark. I finally went to somebody said, go, 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 to, go to the game. Let people know that you're still alive. And so I went to a White Sox game. I saw Ozzy was doing his interviews from the dugout. And, you know, I, I was going to be part of that. But he saw me from the distance and he gave me the finger. And you know what? That meant he still loved me. <laughs> a sign of affection. It. Not for everybody, but a sign of affection for you. That's a uh, sign of affection. Yes, from Ozzie uh, Guillen. Uh, so good stuff on that. They need to hear this in two parts. Part one running right now as we release this podcast on the podcast immediately previous to this one uh, with Ozzie Guillen on all these different subjects, including I want to hear the stuff about the Bartman game because there's so many different stories. And again, as a third base coach, he had quite a view of what went on with Moises Alou of the Cubs going into the stands to try to catch that ball, which would have ended the inning. It doesn't happen. The floodgates open. And I think uh, Ozzie may have torn his rotator cuff from the windmill right arm of wave the runner <laughs> around, wave the runner around because the Marlins yeah. scored about 15 or 18 times in that, e in that inning after the Bartman uh, situation there on that. So in any event, good stuff with that. I'm curious about another thing while I have you here. So at the time we're doing this, the Chicago Blackhawks have won the NHL's draft lottery held on Monday night. You have talked a bunch about the Blackhawks in your podcast series with different interviews, different personalities. You had Darren Pang on recently in your most previous season, who played briefly with the uh, with the Blackhawks yeah, before becoming right. a broadcaster. All right, so give us a feel. How big a deal right now in that market where the Blackhawks were so good for so long with Stanley Cups, now they've had a horrific, embarrassing sexual assault scandal. They've become a last-place <clears throat> team. How big a deal is this that they got the number one overall pick in the lottery? How's this? They sold 500 season tickets last night. Hmm. That's because they're going to be picking Connor Bedard, who is 17 years old and is another one of those transformational players. Tremendous, tremendous talent. Uh, this is what all these teams were playing for. 
Anaheim, Columbus, uh, San Jose, they were all losing. They wanted to lose. And of course, what did the Blackhawks do in the last game of the season? They beat the Penguins. And of course, that knocked the Penguins out, allowed Florida to get in and look at Florida now. Right. Uh, So the Blackhawks finished third. And guess what? They had an 11% chance of winning that lottery kick, and they got it in a really terrible uh, telecast by ESPN, which let the, the, the cat out of the bag. While, while, yeah, while we're doing this, let's just yeah. go over that for one quick second. I mean, you have one job. That's the that's today's phrase from Gen Z. You have one job, which is right. protect the secret draft order here of the lottery to build the drama to the number one pick. That I mean, you talk about that's as close to an inexcusable, fireable thing. Whoever screwed that up, because right, Ke- right. it was Kevin Weeks on the air saying Columbus has the third pick while they're going to a commercial, and you're going. I'm not I, sure that that was. I'm not sure that that was his fault. Uh, you but know. but it was up on the screen. It was yeah. up on the screen, revealing it during the lottery. So while we're doing media critiquing on this podcast. That can't happen when you're trying no, to keep this. And then at that point, you go to a commercial knowing, okay, the Blackhawks either have the first or the second pick. Or Anaheim. So maybe, yeah. You know, right. So. Well, the bottom, the bottom line, TJ, with this is that that's the player everybody wanted, and the Blackhawks got him. Interesting to note, Patrick Kane, who they traded to the Rangers, was their number one pick in 2007, I think, and Jonathan mm-hmm. Taves in 2006 was the number three pick. And they're gone now. Taves is not going to be returned. So they lose them, and now they bring in the next generation. And I think the Blackhawks will still be a pretty bad team next year. It's going to take this kid time, whatever. But if you were going to rebuild a franchise, this was the guy you wanted. And believe me, when a franchise like this can sell 500 season tickets in a few hours, that'll give you a pretty big idea of just how big this player is. All right, we'll go here in a moment or two. George Offen giving me some good wisdom here on the Last Word on Sports Media podcast. Again, tell me a story I don't know. It is the podcast series with a Chicago tinge to it, but again, it has national uh, personalities as well that have some kind of tie to Chicago. Uh, we look forward to not only Ozzie Guillen, but Boog Shiambi, who mo- many of the fans know from his ESPN work yep. on Major League Baseball, as well as college basketball and other sports. Boog, also the Chicago Cubs broadcaster now, used to be with the Marlins uh, as well, doing broadcasting. He's a future guest, so lock it in there. I'm just curious, too, on uh, we understand the NFL is king. So the draft just happened. The Bears obviously made their trade to move down and got out of the number one spot. We've got the schedule announcement later this week for the National Football League where we find out the schedule. I know yeah. it's Bears, Bears, Bears most of the time, 12 months out of the year. Is it still Bears, Bears, Bears right now at this point in May? Yes. Well, yeah, I mean, there's the the, the collapse of the White Sox and decent play of the Chicago Cubs, but it's it's bears, bears, bears because of the draft and the sense that they will be a better team next year because of protection for Justin Fields and the fact that they got more in that in that exchange with Carolina for that first pick. And they beefed up their team. They're not going to be a playoff team next year. But if they can more than double their win total from three to six or seven, that's an improvement. That's the next step. It's going to take several years. But most importantly is going to be whether Justin Fields is their quarterback of the future. They're giving him an opportunity now. They're going to be he's better protected because their first round pick uh, was an offensive lineman. So uh, he was the most sacked quarterback in the league last year. So that's going to be very crucial. The question with them is, can he throw on a consistent basis? And that's something we're going to find out next year. 
Because if the Bears, if he's if he doesn't make that next leap, they got problems. They got to figure it out. Big problems. They got to figure it out. I still remember Gale Sayers, the great Gale Sayers, gave me an all-time line more than 25 years ago because the Bears had begun to struggle in the late 90s, so much so that the laughable doormat Buccaneers were getting the better of the Chicago Bears in the NFC Central and beating them. So Gale Sayers came for a promotional appearance. The radio station that I was with was part of the promotion. I was around him. I was interviewing him on the air. I asked him, how are the Bears going to be? He used a line that I've repeated often. I give him credit for it, but I've read it off. He said, let me tell you, you hear about being two or three players away. The Bears are two or three players away from being two or three players away. So are they <laughs> Are they, are, are they at least Are they at least two or three <laughs> players away? Or George at this stage still two or three players away from being two or three players away, like Gail Sayers said? Mm, yeah, I would say that that's probably true, that they're two or three players away from being two or three <laughs> players away. But, you know, if those two or three players are really good, then it may be one player, two players. Right, we'll right. see. Two very, very quick stories. And now you got to go. Gail Sayers, yep. my first relationship with Gail Sayers, besides being a fan of his, is he was this, he was the uh, athletic director at Southern Illinois University when I was still there in 1975, wow. Wow. which was a real big surprise. And one of our guests coming up is Rick Riz, the voice of the Seattle Mariners, whom I replaced as the voice of Southern Illinois baseball when he left to start his career. And so that dates back to 1975 as well. So these are two nice connections. And Rick Riz, by the way, is a terrific guy, a great guy from Chicago who's now been at Seattle, gosh, for at least 25 plus years. Correct. And in their case, because I know Dave Sims, Simsy too, the TV guy, they yeah. have been Sahara Desert dry for playoff basket, uh, playoff baseball, excuse me. And for them to get to do those late September, early October games where the Mariners qualified for the playoffs, Riz calling it on radio, Sims calling it on TV. Good for them. Good for the good guys. And Seattle looks like they have a playoff contending team again this year. But I was, oh, they're really, I was thrilled. They're really good, I was, yes. I mean, when you're going and and we went through this for a while with the Buccaneers for more than a decade of not being playoff relevant. Think about 20 years, 20 seasons of doing games for Rick Riz on the radio, where every August and September you're talking about everybody else in the pennant race and not your own team. Good for those guys, as you just, yeah, uh, just as you pointed out, just. Just think 88 years for the White Sox not winning a World Series and 108 for the Cubs. Right, and Ozzie we, Guillen. We got you beat on that. <laughs> sure, but Ozzie Guillen is the guy Ozzie that got Guillen. it done for the White Sox, and he is the guest this week on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. Check him out uh, with George, part one of two. Many more great interviews. Listen, thank you for spending some time for me, uh, with me, spending some time hanging out here talking about the podcast. I look forward to hearing many more episodes of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know on this podcast feed. If possible, keep the weather good and try to behave, George Hoffman. One last thing, the book, Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, yes. is out this fall, probably in November, It'll be a great read. I need me an autographed copy. Can you hook me up <laughs> with the author of the book? Tell me a story I don't know, because I need an autographed copy of that book. Fantastic. Congratulations. And we'll be promoting that, obviously, as things get closer. Thank you, George Hoffman. See you, TJ. Great stuff from George. And we did talk a little Stanley Cup playoff hockey. And we've been talking about that also with Matt Zimmick uh, earlier on this program. What is going to happen now that there are no defending champion Colorado Avalanche? My Tampa Bay Lightning three times in a row in the Stanley Cup final. Two victories. Didn't even get out of the first round. But not only that, the team with the best record in the league, Boston, eliminated first round. New York media market with the Rangers, gone. 
Uh, Toronto, they were trying to be a feel-good story, knocking my lightning out. Uh-uh, looks like they're going to get bounced out immediately, and you may know that already, by the uh, the Florida Panthers, who jumped out to a 3-0 series lead. Uh, what a mess. What a mess for the NHL with what's left. Uh, you know, some combination uh, of uh, something like Carolina or Florida playing against Seattle and Las Vegas in the Stanley Cup final. That's not exactly the household names like the Red Wings, the Canadians, the Blackhawks, the teams that you've come to expect all the time that win in the National Hockey League. But nonetheless, that's why you have playoffs and you never know. And the Stanley Cup playoffs are as competitive as anything. It's crazy. It's uh, one goal games, sudden death overtime games, lots of drama uh, with the Stanley Cup playoffs. That's for sure. Um, uh, all right, so there you go with some insight there on the hockey playoffs. Let's get back to our conversations and now turn things to the uh, the outstanding event that it, that the Kentucky Derby is. But it's got controversy all around it. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about the ba- the passing of a basketball legend in the market in Louisville and Denny Crum. Let's get to both of those with another guest here on the Last Word on Sports Media podcast. Another one of my faves. Been looking forward to this as the show rocks along on the Last Word on Sports Media podcast. It has been far too long since I've said hello to Mark Ennis, one of the guys, uh, the godfather of Louisville sports talk. When you talk the Bluegrass State, when you talk who's got their finger on the pulse, on the peeps, especially those that bleed Cardinal Red, this is the dude. This is this is one of my guys. And he's a Tampa brother from another mother right. displaced. Big time Buccaneer fan. Hello, Mark Ennis. Good to have you back aboard with me on my stuff. How you been? I've been doing great. It's been uh it's never boring uh around. <laughs> no. There. Plenty to talk about for sure. No. But it's good to talk to you again. Good to talk to you. I originally hooked you, uh sports media term, broadcasting term. I hooked you trying to get you on to talk Kentucky Derby. And why not? It just ran this. Uh, it, it, this race, the latest installment of the first of the of the Triple Crown races, and arguably one of the most famous events in this country, sports events in this country. So I wanted to bring you on about that. Little did we know when we were lining this up for Tuesday as we released the podcast that the unfortunate news of the iconic Louisville basketball coach Denny Crum passing away would happen before you and I could get together. And talk. And let me publicly acknowledge that Mark is doing this for me later in the night after you have spent the entire day working on your show with your station, that's the Louisville Cardinal flagship station as well, paying tribute to Denny Crum, telling stories, getting guests on in the local market, letting callers relate stories. So thank you up front publicly because you didn't have to do this when you've had a long day that neither one of us expected you were going to have with this story. So thank you for that. And I guess right off the bat, what was it like to cover, reminisce, and talk about the 86-year-old Hall of Fame two-time national championship basketball coach and pay tribute to him in your role with your station? It, look, it was uh, it was an emotional day, you know, for a lot of people. The, it, there are, I think, there are a handful of people. It might not even be a full handful of people that you talk about Louisville in, in at all, not just Louisville sports, even. Uh, Muhammad Ali is one of them, and Denny Crum is one of the others. I mean, you can't talk about this place uh, without it being about one or the other of them. He's one of the iconic people in this history of this city. I think after the Ali funeral and the whole experience of that in the city, uh, we've done this. And and I I think he's not been in great health over the last uh, little bit. I think people were prepared for this. Uh, So there wasn't a lot of shock today. Uh, But I, I think we learned a lot about his legacy today from both people directly and indirectly 
uh, who, you know, have interacted with him, uh, players and fans uh, alike, and a lot of people eager to tell the about their, so their individual experience. So it was fun to be able to get some former players in. You know, uh, Durbin Webb that was on the 86 team came and sat in studio with us. He's a local uh, sir, uh, family court judge now, and he came straight from court because he just wanted to talk. Wow. Still, wow. You know, like he, he just wanted to talk about uh, coach and how he remained coach, you know, after the, his career was even over to him, you know, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, uh, Jeff Greer was was the athletic uh, is still here in town, and all of us I think uh, had so the the fortune of talking about coming to Louisville. All of us, Luke Hancock was in the studio today too with us, uh, coming to Louisville, but not being from here, you know, and coming here and staying, and you know that's what made endeared Denny to everybody is like this is a guy who came up from John Wooden's staff, and everyone thought after the early success he'll be you know he's shoe in to take over there, and he he never left. And then even when his career was over, he never left. And 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 people revere him for that because Louisville's always sort of been this stepping stone-ish thing for everything but basketball. They can hold on to the basketball coaches. No doubt. Uh, and interesting, his first national title came against UCLA, as you well know. Yeah. And then six years later, they won again uh, against Coach K and Duke. Hello. Yeah. Uh, for bookend national titles. And what did I see? He's one of 14 coaches ever. There have only been 14 that have won multiple national titles how about that and i believe he's one of only a handful of coaches to go to at least five final fours at the same school so that i mean synonymous with louisville basketball uh that's for sure they've named the court previously at freedom hall and now at the yum center downtown and they just built a giant dorm yeah just for basketball and the uh sports administration grad school that is the denny crumb you know, a dormitorium. So like they've only just begun to sort of make honorariums for him here around town. Yeah, no doubt. He has, he has a, a legacy here. Uh, hired the first black assistant coaches that Louisville had ever had. And then one of his former players is the first black head coach Louisville's ever had here uh, with Kenny Payne. And uh, now, so legacy on a lot of levels. I know as a Memphis state guy, I always joke with you about this. They, oh, they are such hated Rivals, the blue and gray <laughs> of my alma mater, the red and white of the U of L. And anytime you bring Kenny Payne up, he tortured Memphis State back in the day. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I do I do have to say, though, that after the 86 championship season, it's a Memphis State win over Louisville in the Metro Conference final at Freedom Hall that kept not only Louisville out of the NCAA tournament as the defending national champs, but no one from the Metro went because my Tigers were on probation. And to this day, <laughs> why did they let Memphis State play in the tournament with an automatic bid on the line if they were ineligible? But, but they did. So the, the history, the yin and yang of Memphis State and Louisville goes goes back uh, a great way and with Denny Crum uh, involved in that, did you have uh, some occasion to have him in studio and to, and to talk with him or interact with him some along your storied career right now, as long as you've been doing radio there? And if so, what was that like? Do you have anything you could share? Yeah, uh, did have him on once. Uh, and and as unassuming of a kind of an iconic person as you'll ever meet. And, you know, one of the things that really stuck out today was taking uh, calls from folks who said, you know, I just went to just like a regular old pizza place and he was just there, you know, in the back. Not calling attention to himself, but not a recluse, but just like, why wouldn't I come here? You know, mm -hmm. and a lot of people's experience him was very run of the mill. And I think he took a lot of pride in that, uh, but also did have a lot of uh, time to interact with him, doing th charitable things around town. He really did pour himself 
into just about any cause that that would ask him to, and his own in particular, uh, with the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation that he helped start. And they have an annual dinner uh, where local folks like me or whatever, you know, are like the waiters, you know, and it's a mm-hmm. fun uh, and had a chance to do that with him, thanks to a good friend of mine, Beth. And it was uh, that was a, a treat for me. And what I remember most about that is him stopping to thank all of us. And I thought I was like, I'm I was thanking for being asked to be, you know, involved in it. So he really was that kind of guy. Love my man Mark Ennis, ESPN uh, Radio in Louisville, their afternoon host. I love his insight as he hangs with me on the last word on Sports Media Podcast. I promise we're talking Kentucky Derby uh, here in a couple of moments and the coverage of that. That's one of the things uh, that I, I wanted to bring Mark on to talk about and uh, discuss. All right, so story time from Uncle TJ, and you always, you always love this. So we go back to the unfortunate end for Denny Crum. And in a lot of these cases, this is what happens – well, with a coach that's been there, we just we just saw this with Jim Beheim with his teams the last two or three years not getting it done, and finally uh, they come to a conclusion and a decision, whatever you want to call it. We're forcing you to resign, retire, whatever it happened with with Beheim. Sometimes they leave under pomp and circumstance on their own, and sometimes it's kind of ugly. So in this case, it was kind of ugly. It's two thousand and one. I don't know how much of this you know or if you were even around the Louisville area in 2001, but I had occasion to be there from a media standpoint because I'm the University of South Florida's basketball's play-by-play guy, and the Conference USA tournament was in Louisville with all of the talk, Mark, and you know where I'm going with this, 22 years ago in in March of 01, that they're going to get rid of Denny Crum, the legend who has won two national titles. And simultaneously, the talk is they're going to hire Rick Pitino because Patino had been at Kentucky, you know, again, for people, they have to understand the hatred of that rivalry. For it to even be suggested that a Kentucky coach would then become the Louisville coach to replace Denny Crum, it was wild on the radio to be hearing all of this. But that was basically what was being done by Tom Jurich, I believe, uh, right. to hire Patino. So all of that was the backdrop, my friend. And I was in the arena when they lost that opening game to UAB. Um, in that opening round, and he was dismissed shortly thereafter. Uh, USF, as it turns out, won the opening game. Uh, Seth Greenberg is the coach at that time, Seth Greenberg that you now see on ESPN. So we stuck around for an extra day or two while all this was unfolding. I'll tell you a quick story. We're watching the news that night. Every channel, we're flipping around. I got three or four people with me. We're flipping to every channel, and all they're talking about is Denny Crum and Denny <laughs> Crum, and he's not fired yet. They didn't do it, I don't think, that e- afternoon or evening. I think it was the next day, uh, something like that. But every channel on the news, not the sports, is talking nonstop about it. I finally turned to somebody on our USF travel party and said half-jokingly, there were no homicides apparently in Louisville tonight, no bank robberies. No, uh, no indictments, no public service interest stories to do. It's only about Denny Crum and, and Louisville basketball. So I was in and around this in Louisville, even though didn't didn't live there, don't live there when all of this unfolded. So now that I've shared that, what is your thought on that was a very difficult, odd time when they were getting rid of him. And I was there in and around it at the conference tournament. Yeah, in, in the end, it, it reflects extremely well on him. But that was a very, very painful, I think, time for him and an event for him that he he was very hurt by. And it persisted that I think that uh, Tom Jurich and Rick Pitino both like wanted there to be kind of a clear break. This is ours. This is, we're doing it now. 
and there there developed a rift between pre and post Rick Pitino players that never went away. And the crumb players stopped being around the program and really felt like they weren't invited to be around the program. Mm. So where Louisville lost a really rich all throughout the Patino time, the 70s and 80s players were not around. And, and that lasted until George and Patino ultimately were, were let go uh, five years ago. Hmm. So that persisted. And it, it, the reason that I think it reflects well on Danny is everyone knew it hurt him. Everyone knew he felt like he deserved a better exit and like a more dignified exit than he got. And you, he never, ever complained about it. He didn't. He didn't uh, grouse about it. You never heard anybody say they've heard him talk about it. He just took it, but he stayed. And, and I think you contrast that with Jurich and Patino. When they both got fired, they both packed up their stuff, they sold, and they left. And, and from stayed here. It, it, it says a lot for how much the school, the program, the players, the fans, that's what you're saying, that's what you're implying and you're saying, that it meant to him – well, I just wonder from a media standpoint, we're bringing this to a sports media sure. podcast. Did the media, as this went on, kind of take sides uh, where, you know, the Louisville uh, Courier Journal newspaper guys, columnists, whomever, radio hosts, TV guys, did they start to take? I mean, certainly Patino won, won a bunch and eventually won a national title. Right. From the NCAA's point of view, they've taken that title away now. But for whatever it's worth, they I mean, they won it. But did the media take sides over the last 15, 20 years on this somewhat? I mean, the media ultimately sided with Tom Jurich, uh, and that persisted. And look, Tom was not uh, above downright meddling, you know, in media. His the way he thought the things ought to be talked about was clear, and it was when he could, he tried to almost enforce it. So, <laughs> the media—I don't think the media picked sides early on, but it did buy Tom a lot of gravitas to be able to pull Rick Pitino like that. Uh, and there, look, people did have a sense that they were at the end of where they uh, of the era with Denny but I don't think anyone had a sense for how well, how it should have been done well or how it could have been done well it was always going to feel like this but it still didn't feel good yeah uh great insight from Mark Ennis I promise just a few more moments okay so lots of coverage of the Kentucky Derby uh we once again have controversy uh, where Forte, the horse, is not allowed to run on Derby Day. We have a couple of horses that have to be euthanized in earlier races, which brought the total, and I'm not joking here, did it bring the total to six or seven? I lost track of it. From a national standpoint, in the media coverage, the outcry on the internet and elsewhere, it's one thing. It, do you believe it was over the top too much nationally you're closer to it you're always close to this event in watching the national coverage of the kentucky derby over the weekend saturday into sunday the sunday post coverage what is your take on was it too much on the negativity the controversy or was it warranted mark yeah i i think there's definitely warrant for some coverage of this uh that I think that the, any, I mean, they would love for this to not be a thing that happens. And, and I can understand just seeing it and wanting to explore, is this like, is this ordinary? That doesn't seem good. Or if this is out of the ordinary, what's going on? Uh, and so I, I think there is some basic level of coverage of this that is perfectly warranted, but it's not particularly well done. I think people just see horses are dying and, you know, I, like I, I love 
you know, Dan Levitard, I listened to them on Monday after the the Derby, and it was basically just like, we should outlaw horse racing, and that just seems kind of ridiculous. That's an extreme. Uh, That's a big-time extreme, yeah. Right, exactly. And and so uh, I think that there certainly was warrant to coverage of it, but it did very much seem over the top. And I think in particular, look, it might surprise people just maybe how often this does happen, and that it's not that this was necessarily some super amount or, or something that but that this is maybe more within the context of how this happens. This is a more common occurrence than I think people know. Do you, I I don't know how much you believe in curses or whatever, but whatever black cloud is over this thing, because let's, let's not forget, you know, this, but I'm sharing this with the audience. You had a race disqualification in the Kentucky Derby for the first time ever. You now have had uh, a, a result uh, overturned after the fact because of positive drug tests in a recent uh, derby. Now you have this situation where the favored horse was not even allowed to run because the racing officials, the commission, everybody involved was concerned that this horse could be seriously compromised. If not, now we got a horrific thing in the Kentucky Derby. Do you believe a black cloud is right now over this event a little bit? You're there. You're right in and around it. What, what about it? You know, I think we're too, we're still too close to some tr- like tremendously feel good stories with, you know, the first couple of recent Triple Crown winners uh, in a very, very long time and one of them having some, a local origin. Uh, so, no, I, mean, I don't think that there's a black cloud, but I do think what we see is the product of the fact that I think Churchill intentionally, Churchill Downs as an institution, sets itself up as like sort of the paragon of these things, you know, and, and, above boredness and the fact that you're not going to be able to call into question the outcomes of what happens in these races, including being willing to, to suspend Bob Baffert for years. You know, one of the best trainers in the world that they, they don't suffer any of this. And I think that it also calls attention to the fact that Churchill deals with, and every track deals with this. I think you've heard talk about this uh, probably in, in other venues about the fact that there are very different standards for how things are, what's allowed in in Arkansas or in California or Florida. And then it all comes together in a short period of time before the Kentucky Derby. And they're responsible for people who may have been doing things that were fine for everywhere else. And and so there's a sort of, I think there's a lot of things that work all at the same time. I still remember you called it. I had you on one of my pods uh, in and around the Bob Baffert controversy. And you said, these guys are going to drop the hammer on him. They will not hesitate. They don't play favorites. They don't go light on the famous, on the former Derby winner, and you they were right. They don't need anyone, anybody. Yeah. You know, like, you know, Bob Eifert is not irreplaceable. The Derby's doing just fine. Uh, and I'll add that in the state of Kentucky, they just uh, were able to, to, in a legislative kind of miracle, overcome some legislative opposition and legalize sports gambling here. And they chose to do so through existing tracks. And so Churchill Downs is now poised in just a couple of months to become a legalized sports gambling place. And the last thing they're going to do is put up with anything that could call into question the way they execute any of this, including mm. that. All right. One more fun thing. I promise I'm getting out, getting you out of here in a minute or two. I have said this about the networks. I was talking to somebody off the year. I'll just share it here. When ESPN comes to cover Monday night football, my God, Mark, it is like an army, yeah. literally oh, of people. Like yes. Of people, technicians, equipment, assistants, holding cables and, and, Pick, you know, uh, setting up things and tearing down things. What was it like with NBC? And it's no different with NBC Sunday Night Football, by the way. Uh, what was it like in and what has it become at Churchill Downs to see NBC just descend to cover this event 
with hundreds, not a few dozen, but hundreds of people and on-air people that are going to come and cover this thing. It's it's it is truly it's an army. I mean, it looks like um, an invading army, like an occupier, like so not you know an ocean of people, but but machinery, mm-hmm. additional cameras, almost anywhere that you can stick one inside that track for the Derby Week is incredible because part of the production that's so valuable for them is so the replay and other angles and all that sort of thing and what the the amount of effort and the ocean of people and it's kind of kind of cool because it comes together in stages you watch it throughout the week you know we do all of our shows uh, from the backside of the morning and then from the grandstands all week so we take the whole weekend while we're out there which is super fun to do but you can see that not only as the crowds get bigger throughout the week the operation expands too and you really can't see the media coverage of it grow and then as you get very very close so the friday when all the parties and everything are here in town you know the the ocean of celebrities that come in just for the derby then it becomes the social event media also shows up on top of the sort of the the gambling horse racing media then it all becomes kind of it's like having the super bowl and the media is everywhere well, and it was something to watch NBC pull this off. I kept joking. They had the coronation in London that they were covering. <laughs> they had the derby in the afternoon, and I'm not sure they had anybody left to cover anything else yeah. as the day was going on, besides if you weren't in London or in Louisville. The two L's, as it turns out. This man holds lots of hats between yeah, lots of hats between both of them. Yes, you're yeah. correct. This man holds it down every afternoon on the drive. That's the name of his radio program, ESPN Louisville's radio station. Uh, Mark Ennis, give me the quick 30-second take. Will you please with the Buccaneer draft? They took a Louisville guy on the defensive line, yeah. Yaya Diaby. Yeah. He is a Buccaneer guy, a Super Bowl-loving Buccaneer guy from the Brady Bucks of, of 2020. Are you happy with the Buccaneer draft, post-draft? Yeah, I am, because I think uh, Kalaji Kansi is extremely good. I mean, he was like, impossible to deal with for years. Uh, and Like, low-key, Pitt puts a lot of guys in the NFL on defense. You start looking over the uh, last several mm-hmm. years, Pat Narduzzi does a great job there, but it looks like it was obvious they wanted to address the front seven and the pass rush with this draft, uh, and I think they did. I think fans are going to like Yaya Diaby. He didn't play football very much growing up. Louisville assigned him out of Georgia Military College, and he did not hit it off well here. He got off to a slow start but stuck with it, uh, and this the, the last two-thirds of last year, he was unblockable. He was fantastic, and I really Hope think – want to hear you get the work ethic guy, crazy long arms, compact. I mean, I think he's going to fit right in. I think they're going to like what he adds. what I want to hear from my Buccaneer brother from another mother. And we find out the NFL schedule, by the way, Thursday night. We know the teams, but we find out the win. We find out what night, if it's a primetime game or Sunday. We find out, is TJ going to freeze to death in Buffalo or Green uh-huh. Bay? Be thinking of me outside if those games are in December. We shall see. Listen, you are the best to hang with me. Uh, I always appreciate it, Mark Ennis. Thank you for so much on Denny Crum and reminiscing on the Kentucky Derby and much more. We'll have you on again. Great stuff here on the Last Word on Sports Media podcast, brother. Appreciate it. Anytime. And there you go. Some tremendous insight from Mark. And again, uh, appreciate him. By the way, the Kentucky Derby ratings were actually down as Mage the horse, the unknown horse, ended up winning. Uh, just over 14 million people watching, about 14.4 million on average. That was down by more than a million and a half from a year ago. Uh, interesting, though, that, that that still is a devastating number for NBC to be able. I mean, their primetime programming doesn't get 5 million on a Saturday night, their network programming. So the fact that you can get nearly 
15 million for a horse race. Uh, it, it is that big. It's that exciting. And yes, it will probably taper off for the Preakness and even with the Triple Crown running on it for the Belmont. But this event is that big time of an event. Uh, and it is it demonstrates, again, even with the controversy, it did well with the ratings. Uh, a couple of other things before we leave. By the way, the Monday night Lakers-Golden State uh, win by the Lakers rallying in the fourth quarter to take a three games to one lead. That scored well again. In terms of uh, television numbers for TNT, the viewership up uh, with Game 4 averaging 7.5 million up significantly from the same similar game between the Grizzlies and the Warriors last year that had 5.2 million. More than 2.3 million people more, 40% more audience. And you would expect that because it's LeBron and the Lakers, Steph Curry and the Warriors. And you know the, the NBA doesn't want this series to end right now. Uh, especially uh, with the prospect of a game six or maybe a winner take all game seven, but the Warriors have got to do something down three to one. Obviously, they've got to keep it alive by winning game five, and then the uh, the NBA will be happier with the game six uh, coming on this weekend and, and potentially a game seven to go to the Western Conference uh, Finals in the NBA. Of course, the Boston Celtics taking it on the chin as we release the podcast and losing to the Philadelphia 76ers on Tuesday night, could the Celtics who were the NBA finals representative out of the East go bye-bye just like the top team in the NHL, the Boston Bruins go bye-bye before they ever get a chance to play for the championship. It could be happening and we'll see if it damages the NBA uh, ratings. If it's uh, if it's Philadelphia and it looks like it's going to be the Miami heat as the other team playing for the Eastern conference championship. It's not Boston. It's not the Knicks, which is what the NBA would want. With those two larger markets, still Philadelphia has fans. Miami's won championships, but I don't know if it's going to take that big of a ratings hit uh, or not. And obviously Denver and Phoenix are battling in the other Western series to still be played out. So there's a little NBA playoff talk. One other thing, by the way, back to the Stanley Cup playoffs. Can somebody explain to me as we close it out on the last word on Sports Media Podcast? I'm not doing the love it or leave it thing here. But I, I want to put the APB out for where is Wayne Gretzky? What have I missed for the great one not being part of Turner's coverage so far in the first couple of rounds of the Stanley Cup playoffs? They hired him with a bunch of fanfare as Turner got the NHL rights last year. I've seen nothing anywhere anybody's reporting that Wayne Gretzky is no longer part of Turner's coverage. But where is he? Night in and night out, he's not in the studio providing insight and analysis. And I just have to say it, I mean, ESPN has got Mark Messier, Chris Chelios, Stanley Cup winners, recognizable Hall of Fame names that are sitting there telling you playoff stories and giving you insight from having played at the highest level and won championships. The TNT show, I mean, Anson Carter has been around doing uh, the NBC programming uh, pre and post game uh, previously, but he's not an all-time great. And the, and the rotating analysts are, are guys that we don't even know who they are. They, they've got the clown Bissonette who wants to be a clown. He's trying to be like Charles Barkley, who's a podcast host. Never was, He's a do-nothing former player, did nothing. He's not giving you anything on inside of when he played, when he scored great moments, great games that he was involved in. Where is the great one? Speaking of great, where is Wayne Gretzky? The APB is out. What is up with that with the Turner show that had all the fanfare? With Gretzky reportedly making as much as $3 million a year from Turner, has he walked away from that job and they're not saying he just doesn't want to be there? Uh, hard to fathom that you wouldn't have him in the Stanley Cup playoffs. It's one thing if he wasn't in the studio for regular season games. 
And I don't know, I don't know what the latest is. Maybe Wayne got tired of this and they just quietly separated and they're not paying him anymore. But where was that announcement? Why? I mean, I, I had some expectation that that would be there. Anyway, there you go. There's some insight. There's some takes from me, some great guests, I think, off the show. Hope you enjoyed it with Matt Zemeck from the USA Today Trojans Wire coverage uh, out West. Love his insight on everything, not only which is with USC, but college football, college basketball, and even talking some Seattle sports. George Offman, tell me a story I don't know. With that podcast uh, out right now, two-part series with uh, Ozzie Guillen, part one. Uh, that is underway right now with the former White Sox World Series uh, winning manager, and he's now obviously in the media world, in the uh, pregame analyst and uh, postgame analyst world, giving great insight. You'll hear from him, and I didn't even really remember that he was part of the Bartman game, the 2003 playoff disaster for the Cubs that Ozzie Guillen was there as the third base coach for the Marlins and took the White Sox job the following year, 04, and they won the whole thing, as it turns out. Uh, so great job by George. And also thank you, Mark Ennis of ESPN's Louisville radio station, ESPN Louisville's 93.3 FM. Uh, he's the afternoon host giving you insight on the Kentucky Derby, the passing of Denny Crum. Love me some Mark Ennis as well. Uh, go check him out and find him with the ESPN Louisville radio station and their coverage. For now, we are done and we are good. Again, follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. To the last word on Sports Media Podcast, we're back each and every week. And on this feed, you hear George Offens tell me a story I don't know, as well as later in the week, the Announcer Schedules podcast with Mike and Phil, breaking down all, all the great announcing from all the different sports, current events, great guests with Mike and Phil on Announcer Schedules later in the week. For now, I'm TJ Reed. Thank you for being with me. Uh, go to uh, lastwordonsports.com slash podcast to find out more as well for the Last Word on Sports Media Podcast. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.